Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. The message this morning is very closely connected to the one last week, and so before we just dive in, I want to back up a step and review a little bit of what's happening in the book of Acts as well as what we talked about last week, and um, I, I think this is needed. I, I think this series is needed. I think it's helpful, and, and I, I think it's going to be something as we continue through this that we're going to be challenged by, continue to be challenged by, and hopefully transformed by. So what we've been seeing in the book of Acts is the rise of the church. But over the past several messages, we've been seeing the rise of persecution, right? You remember last week how we saw Stephen being stoned and the persecution that was taking place? And really, if you look at the end of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, the first few verses of chapter 8, what we looked at last week, you begin to see this, trans, this transformation taking place to where initially the church is simply growing and thriving and lives are being changed and the, they're meeting each other's needs and things are going great. Persecution now begins to creep in. And what happened with Stephen, as we saw last week, the stoning of Stephen really was or is kind of this turning point in this persecution that's taking place. I mean, if you remember back to last week, we all, you all remember last week? You all are just sitting there like, I think there was a last week. I'm not. We, we saw Stephen standing up for his faith in the face of persecution. We saw Stephen, even though he is threatened with death, continue to speak boldly about Christ and through his words, his actions, and his attitude, continues to point people to Christ. And the, then even as he is drug out of Jerusalem, he's outside the town, they're getting ready to stone him to death. Even with his dying breath, he prays that God would not hold this offense, this sin against these people, and then he dies. In fact, I could not think of much worse ways to die than by being stoned to death. That's severe, it's painful, and it's something that everyone dreaded. But what I want you to notice is that persecution that we ended with in the life of Stephen last week, at the beginning of chapter 8 now, begins to become the norm. So up until this point, in chapter 4, chapter 5, we had these little isolated cases of persecution. Now with the death of Stephen, we have this persecution that is kind of ramped up and is affecting all the Christians. In fact, look back, if you will, at the beginning of chapter 8. In verse 1, we see that Saul agreed with putting him to death. This is the first time Saul, as we know as Paul, comes on the scene. We're going to be talking about him a whole lot more in chapter 2. But notice this. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Let's pause here for a second. This is an important note. If you remember back to the very first message in this series, we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That was all about this mission, this co-mission that we've been giving to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Up until this point, the gospel has been really contained for the most part in 
inside Jerusalem. It's almost like this was the hub of the early church. This was the huddle where the church began. And while certainly there were people who came and were saved and went back home, the church was not yet flourishing in other areas. All of that begins to change here in Acts chapter 8. So in the first seven chapters, the gospel is flourishing in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 and chapters 9, the gospel begins to flourish in Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 10 and following, we see the gospel flourishing throughout the ends of the earth. And so it kind of, the layout of the book of Acts follows Acts 1.8. So the gospel begins flourishing, but it's because of the persecution. Notice verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. That's the setting. I asked the, the, those in the early service earlier, how bad would the persecution have to be to cause you to pack everything up and leave your home? How severe would the persecution have to be to abandon all your possessions, abandon whatever friends you had, abandon your home, leave your church, and move to another area simply because persecution is happening and you are affected by I mean, how bad would it have to be? I mean, I'm sure them seeing Stephen stoned to death did not help anything at all. Seeing their neighbors, I can imagine some of them getting up and looking out of their window and seeing these armed guards go into the house next to them and drag the, the, those who lived in that house out and throw them in prison and them going around inquiring what happened and being told, well, they're believers in Christ. And that's the only offense. Them seeing that people are being taken from their house and leaving the church and moving. I mean, imagine the psychological effect. I mean, imagine coming in here one Sunday and 60, 70% of the church being gone because they've moved because of persecution. That's the reality of Christianity at this point in the early church. They are being drugged from their homes. The persecution is severe. The, Stephen, the first martyr, they, they bury him. They're mourning his loss. They're wondering what in the world is taking place. And last week we saw the example of Stephen. And so as we see this rise of persecution, that's not the only thing happening. So if you have your outline, let's turn it over on the back. You'll see several points, several truths that we're going to go through this morning to help us understand what else is happening. So not only is persecution happening... The title this morning is The Spread of the Gospel because through the persecution, the gospel is being advanced. Through the persecution that the early church is experiencing, that the Christians are experiencing, that is a tool in the hand of God, as we're going to see, to spread the gospel. Saul is introduced. The persecution is severe. Christians are running. Christians are fearful. So what is it that we can learn from our passage this morning? Here's number one. Persecution led to the spread of of the gospel. Write that down. Persecution led to the spread of the gospel. We read the first three verses. Notice verse four now. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. That verse four is key. So as they are scattered, and what caused their, them to be scattered? Persecution, fear of death. As that persecution is scattering the early church, they are going about, as they are leaving, as they are abandoning everything, as they are leaving all their possessions, they continue to preach the message of Christ. Now, we be may be tempted to think, well, certainly it was the apostles who were proclaiming Christ as they were being scattered. But if you look back up to verse 1 and 2, it clearly says that everyone was scattered except the apostles. So the people being scattered are the church members, 
The people being scattered are the believers. The people who are running for their lives are the believers. And then when you get in verse 4, the people who continue to proclaim Christ, even in the face of persecution, are the believers of the church. You. It's the church members who are proclaiming Christ. And here's what's interesting about this, is that they do not allow the threat of persecution to deter them. Yes, persecution is so severe that they're running for their lives, and yes, it is so severe that they're leaving everything behind, but they have not lost sight of the mission that God has given them. In fact, if you think back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it says, "'Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples.'" The command of that verse, grammatically, is not go. The command is make disciples. It's worded in a way that indicates that the going is assumed. So literally it reads, wherever you are going, however you are going, and whenever you are going, make disciples. That is an instruction for every single one of us. And so it's the idea that wherever you happen to be going, wherever it is that you happen to be living, be involved in the process of making disciples in that place. See, Here's the flaw I think we sometimes make. We view missions as the job of somebody else, the job of someone who is going to that faraway place that's hard to reach, where Christians are persecuted, and we say, you know what? I want to give so missionaries can go there, which is good, and we should. We're going to see that in a moment. But we neglect the part of missions where we understand that God has given each and every one of us the exact same job as the missionaries, just we're not called to go somewhere else. We're called to do that here. So a missionary may go to Africa. I've got a pastor friend who's in Africa right now visiting missionaries. Those missionaries may go to Africa, and while they are there, they will be involved in the process of making disciples. What you and I need to understand is that wherever God has placed us, that is our mission field. Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the mid-1800s, said this, Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. What did he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant was that all of us have the call on our life to live on mission for God. The mission field is not somewhere else. The mission field is wherever you happen to be. So that job that you have, that is your mission field. The place where you live, it's not just a place to, 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 to stay in your free time. That is your mission field. Wherever you're going and whatever you happen to be doing and wherever it is that life takes you, make disciples. And that's what I see this, these early Christians doing, right? I mean, the persecution is driving them from their home, but in their mind, they are thinking, we will not be deterred from what God has called us to do. So wherever we're going and whenever we're going, we will make disciples, even if what caused them to go is persecution. I think a lot of times what happens to us is that we see the persecution and we think that if this persecution was not on my radar, it must not have been on God's radar. I mean, if, if the pain that I'm experiencing was not expected by me, then certainly it wasn't expected by God. I mean, have you ever had anything bad happen? <laughs> I'm wondering, I'm like, well, I need to know what y'all are doing. We all have tragedy that strikes, right? And sometimes we can think when that tragedy strikes and when the pain comes and when the unexpected events of life come crashing in, we can be tempted to think, I was not expecting this, so God must not be expecting it. And if God is not expecting it, then God can't use it. 
What you and I have to understand is when those things come, not if, when those things come, you may be surprised by it, but God is not. And since God is not surprised by it, he can use it to further his plan. So when those things come crashing in around you and when the sickness strikes and the pain strikes and the loss strikes and the hurt strikes and the fear comes into your life, understand, God is not surprised by those events, which means God can use those events to further his kingdom and to further the gospel. So in the book of Acts, what we're seeing here is persecution. These Christians were not expecting the persecution. It was not on their radar. But instead of saying, well, God wasn't expecting this, so God can't use it, they had the perspective that says, even though I was not expecting this, God is not caught off guard, therefore God can use it. So I will respond in such a way that will allow the gospel to be furthered through my response, not hindered by my response. And that's the mistake we make, is we respond to tragedy often, and we respond to heartache and loss and pain and sickness in a way that hinders the spread of the gospel. When God's plan for your life and mine and for the church is that when persecution strikes, we respond, and when pain strikes, we respond in a way that advances the spread of the gospel. I mean, it had been very easy for the Christians in this church who were being scattered to say, you know what, I just saw Stephen a close friend stoned to death. I've seen my neighbors drugged from their houses and thrown in prison simply because they are believers, simply because of their faith. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to go and I'm going to hide and I'm going to retreat and I'm going to get out of the light. And I'm going to get in a place where it's no longer about Christ and no longer about Christianity. I'm just going to sit back and let things calm down. And when things calm down and the persecution's gone and the pain's gone, then I will step back up and live for Christ. That is not what they did. They said it doesn't matter whether times are good or times are bad, we will live for Christ. And it doesn't matter whether there is health or whether there is sickness, we will proclaim Christ. It doesn't matter whether it is easy or whether it is hard, we will proclaim Christ. We will respond to whatever it is that comes into our life in a way that says we believe the message of the gospel and it is life-changing and you need it regardless of what is taking place. Respond to trials in a way that advances the spread of the gospel. And here's why this is so important. Because some of you will face something severe this next week. That's the reality. Someone walked into the early service this morning about 8.20, right, 10 minutes before we were starting, and walked up and said, I was sitting with this loved one one week b before, and four or five days later got a phone call that their life had ended. Completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. You go to the doctor for a routine checkup and then you get the news you were dreading. You think everything's going well and you've got your financial house in order, then all of a sudden you lose your job. These things in life happen and you have to determine now how will you respond Will you respond in a way that in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the chaos, will you respond in a way that allows the advance of the gospel through your testimony and through your response and through your life, or will you respond in a way that says, I don't really believe this to be true? Because if it is true, then there is far more than what happens 
on this earth and in our life. There is an eternity. So understand the persecution that we see in Acts 8 led to the spread of the gospel. Number two, embracing the gospel leads to joy. Embracing the gospel leads to joy. Look at, I'm going to start reading in verse verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said, and as they heard and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Notice verse 8. This is the key verse. So there was great joy in the city. Basically what happened is Philip is coming, he's proclaiming Christ, people are believing, lives are being changed, and there is something about seeing lives changed that produces joy. There is something about seeing lives drastically changed by the gospel that produces joy. You and I should long, as believers, to see lives changed. We should, we, we should desire that, but not everybody does, Right? I mean, it's possible to go to church and be in church every single week, but not really desire to see lives changed. I mean, there are people who are fine with lives being changed as long as they are not inconvenienced by it. There are people who are fine with lives being changed as long as they can remain in their comfort zone. There are people who are fine with lives being changed, but they don't want to have to change what they are doing. They're fine with lives being changed if it happens on its own, it doesn't require me to really adjust anything. See, these Christians in Acts 8 desired lives to be changed to the point that they welcomed persecution if that persecution would lead to it. And now they're in this city and lives are being changed and there is joy that is being produced. I mean, you and I, listen, you and I as believers, we should long to see lives changed. We, I mean, what would it be like every single week to come in and see people saved and baptized every week? What would it be like to come in and hear testimonies of marriages being restored and addictions being broken and, and, and things that people are going through, responding in a way so that other people are coming to faith in Christ? I mean, we should long for that to happen, so much so that we are willing to step out of our comfort zone to pursue. I mean, would we welcome persecution if it meant that the gospel would advance and lives would be changed? Or do we simply sit back and say, I am fine with lives being changed as long as it really doesn't affect me? That's the easy response. I mean, that's the response that most people have. You know what? If I hear of a life being changed, that's great. And I will applaud that, but I'm not going to change anything to pursue it. Why are we here? I mean, why do we exist as a church? We should long for, to see lives changed. We should pray to see lives changed. So much so that we are willing to step out of our comfort zones so that we can witness that happening. And you want know the byproduct of seeing lives changed is? Joy. You walk into a church that has no joy, you know what I can tell you? The gospel is not the focus and lives are not being changed. You walk into a place where lives are being changed on a regular basis, you know what you're going to find? Joy and excitement each and every time. Long for lives to be changed. Pray for lives to be changed. Come each week anticipating lives to be changed. And come each week willing for your life to be changed. 
Because we haven't arrived, have we? We haven't arrived, have we? We need growth. Come and ask God to change you. Number three, let me just mention this. The power of the gospel is visible. I'm not going to read all this, but verse 9 through verse 13, we see how the gospel is visible. I mean, the gospel changes lives, and in the early church, we see lives being changed spiritually and physically, but that same gospel is alive and is well today and is just as powerful. But what I want you to notice is that it is visible. So they're paying attention to this preaching that has taken place, and Simon had practiced sorcery, and everyone was kind of looking at him and valuing him. In fact, you look at the end of verse 10, this man is called the great power of God. He is practicing sorcery. He's called the great power of God. He's practiced this for years. Everyone looks up to him and respects him and reveres him. But when the gospel is preached, everything changes. See, the gospel changes lives, and it is a visible change. See, the gospel is not something private that we keep. Now, I think back to the persecution of these Christians, and I wonder, how did the armed guards, and how did Saul know who to arrest? I mean, how, how did they know which houses to go to? I mean, maybe there was an inside person, but I think more probable is the fact that they were living their faith. They were Christians, and they were gathering as the church, and they were sharing their faith, and they were living their Christian values, and they were doing all of these things. So when they began looking for Christians, it was clear who was a Christian. Why? Because the gospel had transformed them. The gospel was powerful. That's why Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why? There is a change. The power of the gospel is visible. Which means as you and I focus on the gospel and we live out the gospel and we rely on the gospel, our lives will be different. The power of the gospel is visible. And the gospel is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. I believe that. Let me give you number four. The church sends people to spread the gospel. The church sends people to spread the gospel. I want you to notice specifically verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent, there's our key word, they sent Peter and John to them. So I want you to picture this. The church in Jerusalem is flourishing. The leaders of the church, Peter and John, are the ones who are holding all all the things together. They hear about the gospel advancing in a nearby region the church does. So what the church does is says, you know what? We are not content with just impacting this one town. We want, the, we, we want to send our best people, Peter and John, to go so that other people can know about Jesus. So the gospel would spread, the gospel would advance. I wonder how many of us would be willing to send some of our leaders to another area so the gospel would expand. And so that the reach of the gospel would be greater. See, sometimes in our American Christianity, we, we attach a business mindset to the church. In the, in the business world, you want your business to grow and be profitable and be large, and you want it to keep going. And when we bring that mentality into the church, we have this idea that, well, in order to be profitable, we have to be growing and large and keeping everything for ourselves. So in the biblical model, and what we see all throughout the book of Acts is the church is to be committed to sending, going, and giving. 
for the spread of the gospel. It is not about us accumulating as many people as we possibly can. It is about bringing people in, discipling them, then turning around and sending them out so the gospel advances. It is not just about this one location. The commission we've been given is both local and global. We bring people in, we see them saved, we teach them, we disciple them, and then we send them out. I mean, I wonder if our culture here as a church is really a going, a giving, a sending, a sacrificing culture. That should be the culture and the mindset and the heart of the church. Several years ago, I read a book, um, and the author of this book, who is a pastor in Alabama, if I remember correctly, was talking about how he went to this church and they had committed to be on mission and they had committed to do all of these things for missions and to advance the kingdom. And they were met with this wonderful opportunity, missions opportunity, that would do wonders to advance the kingdom of God. I mean, the gospel would be preached to thousands, if not millions of people. Churches would be started. Orphanages would be started. People's lives would be changed by this. And so they went back to the church, and in their account, they had $500,000 that was undesignated. And they voted and sent all $500,000 to missions. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, just be honest. You can nod. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to seem, it seems crazy. I mean, why would a church give that much money to a cause? Well, maybe it was because in that church there was this culture of giving and going and sending and sacrificing for the purpose of advancing the gospel, for the purpose of spreading the gospel to those who needed the gospel. In fact, in that book, and again, it's been several years since I've read it, but I even remember them talking about how they had planned on doing this remodel to one portion of their building, but they said no to that so that they could give more to the advance of the gospel sounds weird because it's so foreign. In October, we're going to be focusing on missions every Sunday that month and even looking into the possibility of having some speakers come in in the month of October to challenge us in the area of missions. I think it's something that we have to focus on. But I wonder what would happen if we did if we say, you know what, we want to be serious about cultivating this heart and this culture of giving, sending, going, sacrificing. I mean, what if we looked, and I'm not saying that, that we're, this is what we're doing, but just imagine with me, will you? Imagine with me. I mean, what if we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we saw the four areas, the Jerusalem, which is our local area, and Judea, which is our region, and Samaria, which is other cultures within the United States, and the ends of the earth, world missions. What if we looked at that and said, you know what? We want to be committed to giving, going, sending, sacrificing. What if we said we want to give $10,000 to each one of these so that the gospel advances in all four of these areas? And what if we said, you know what, we care about our local area and so we want to invest in spreading the gospel here and we care about our region and we want to invest in the gospel being spread in our region and we, we care about other cultures within the U.S. and so we want to sacrifice so that the gospel is spread there and we care about the world. We know that God has a heart for the world and so we want to invest so the gospel is spread to the ends of the earth. What if we said we want to do something like that? I mean, doesn't that sound crazy? let me tell you something. God blesses crazy when it furthers the kingdom. And God honors crazy when it's about the spread of the gospel. 
I mean, we have to have this giving and this going and this sending and this sacrificing mentality that says it doesn't matter what it takes and it doesn't matter what it costs. God has given us a mission and we are going to invest and pursue and commit to being sure that we do all that we do to see that the gospel is advanced and that more people know about Jesus. Because there is coming a day when Christ is going to return and in eternity will begin and everything that we've done here is, will be reflected in eternity and we will have no more opportunities to impact the world world for Christ. We will have no more opportunities to give and go and send and sacrifice for the kingdom. There is coming a day where all the opportunities that we currently have will be over. And we need to be a church that looks back and says, you know what, we've done all that we could do. The worst thing is to be standing in that moment saying, I wish we'd have done more. I wish we would have gave more. I wish we would have sacrificed more. I wish we would have sent more. I wish we would have been more focused on spreading the gospel. See, the church in the book of Acts spread the gospel, and they sent people, and they gave and their sacrifice so the gospel would be spread. You said, well, why does all that matter? How do you know God blesses that? When we look at the church throughout the book of Acts, this church that began in Jerusalem begins to grow. And other regions are affected and lives are changed. And you and I are here today worshiping on a Sunday morning in Hanahan, South Carolina. And we can trace it all the way back to this church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. What happens when a church sacrifices and gives and sins and go? God blesses and God honors. But that's the responsibility of the church to send. Number five, let me just mention this briefly. The power of the gospel cannot be bought. Verse 18 through verse 24, again, I'm not going to read all of these. I would encourage you to read them this week. But there's this individual who comes up. He sees the power of Peter and John, people being healed, lives being changed. And he says, how much, how much do I have to pay to get that? How much do I have to pay so I can have that same power? I want you to notice what Peter says. This shows the heart of the issue. All right? Look at verse 21. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. It's a heart matter. Verse 22, therefore repent. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we purchase. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that we experience its power through repentance. It's looking at our own hearts and our own lives and saying, I, my heart is deceitfully wicked. Therefore, I repent before a holy God, and it is that act that transforms our hearts. What was needed in this individual's life was repentance and forgiveness. And ironically, the repentance that he needed was available through the power of the gospel, which he thought he could buy. He thought he could buy the power of the gospel. He thought he could buy this, what he thought was this sorcery. But what he needed to be able to experience the power of God in his life was repentance, and that was the thing that was standing in his way. This individual was poisoned with bitterness, bound in the chains of iniquity. He needed the power of the gospel. He needed to humble himself and repent of his sins and make Jesus the Lord of his life. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Let me give you the final thing and we'll be done. The apostles were committed to preaching the gospel. Number six, the apostles were committed to preaching the gospel. So think back through everything we just talked about, everything that we saw last week in Acts chapter 6, 7, and now halfway through Acts chapter 8. We've seen lives change. We've seen the persecution grow. 
Peter and John go to this area. They proclaim Christ. Lives are changed. Look at verse 25. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem. It would have been very easy for this paragraph to end right there. But there's another phrase. They traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. So picture this. They go, they preach, persecution has driven the church all these different areas. The gospel is now spreading in Judea and Samaria. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're here in this town. They preach. People are saved. Lives are changed. There's joy in the city. Now it's time to go back home. And what they do is as they go home, they stop off in all these individual villages and towns proclaiming the gospel. See, for, for, for these early Christians, living on mission was not an event. It was a lifestyle. For these early Christians, being involved in spreading the message of Christ was not something they did once a week. It was something they did whenever they had opportunity. So even as they're just traveling back home, they are looking for opportunities. I I kind of picture them saying, maybe there's a village over here we can tell about Jesus. And what about this little town? And they took their time and they looked and they stopped everywhere and said, we want you to know about Jesus. Why? Because we have seen the power of God at work and it is life changing. We want you to know of this Jesus. We want you to know of the life changing power of the gospel. Let us tell you. And it all started with this church in Jerusalem saying, go. Preach, proclaim Christ, tell people about the gospel. See, sometimes I think we can look at these chapters in Acts 6, 7, and 8, and we see the persecution, we see the turmoil in the church, but what we sometimes miss is that it is in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turmoil, that the gospel begins to advance and lives are changed. And towns are transformed and cities are transformed. But it begins with believers understanding their responsibility to pursue the mission that God has given them. It begins with people like you, me, who stand up and say, in order for us to have a church that is going to pursue the mission, in order for us to have a church that has a culture of sending and going and giving and sacrificing, in order for that to be the culture of the church, that has to be the culture of its members. You will never have a church that looks different than its majority of its members. Right? I mean, if we sit back and say, you know what, I'd love to go to a church that looks like that, but I'm sure not going to do it. And we each begin adopting that mindset, it'll never happen. The only way we can be a biblical church is for us to be biblical Christians. See, some of you this morning, here's what you need to do. You need to look at your heart and you need to look at your life. And you may like the idea of our church being a going and sending, giving, sacrificing kind of a church, but that's not who you are. That's not where you're at. And what you need to pray this morning is that God would show you the need that people have for the gospel and that he would create within you a passion to spread that gospel to other people. I long for the day, and Pastor Jason and I talk about this, I long for the day where we come in and every single week we see people saved and baptized. Every single week. 
where every single week we hear stories of marriages being restored, addictions being broken, lives being chained, people who are rebelling against God are now submitted to God. Every single week we hear about that, and we see that, and we witness that. And let me tell you what will happen. There will be a joy in this place like you have never seen before. Why? Because when we are committed to the spread of the gospel, we will see lives changed. And when we see lives changed, that will produce joy. But what you and I have to do is we first have to commit to the spread of the gospel. We have to say this is a priority and then pursue it. And some of you, that's what you need to do this morning. We stand with me? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then I want you to do business with God. If God is speaking to you, respond. If God is speaking to you, make the decision that He's leading you to make. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that guides, that challenges, that convicts. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand that in order for us to be a giving and a going and a sending and a sacrificing church, God, that has to be the mentality of the members. And God, there may be people here who, if they're honest with themselves this morning, that's not their passion, that's not their mentality. They're fine if it happens, but they haven't done anything to this point to pursue it aggressively. And God, I pray that you would create within them two things. First, I pray that you would create within them an understanding of the need that exists. Help them to understand that there are people all around us, and in, not just in this city, but in a region, around the U.S., around the world, who need Christ. And God, I cr- pray that you would create within each and one of them a passion for the spread of the gospel. God, I think it would be a wonderful thing if from here in Hanahan, South Carolina, we created a church, a movement. You created a church and a movement here that was responsible for the gospel being spread as it has never gone from here before. I pray you'd help us to pursue that goal. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.